This episode is sponsored by Fracht. Fracht means freight in German. Founded in 1955 in Basel, Switzerland as a freight forwarder, the company has grown and evolved to become a global logistics provider for many industries. Specifically for oil and gas, the company manages the complex movement of large industrial equipment used in our offshore production platforms, all the way to MRO, rope soap and dope, and chemicals. For more information, find them at www.frochtgroup.com. Welcome to ESG Energize, where we discuss the latest developments in the environmental, social, and governance arena that are impacting the energy industry today. Here is your host, Delfina Govia. This is Delfina Govia, the Chief Sustainability Officer for Frac, a global logistics provider with an unflinching commitment to sustainability and ESG, and where we are collaborating with our customers and our suppliers to deliver innovative, sustainable supply chain solutions. Ladies and gentlemen out there in ESG land, today we are covering the topic of renewable energy around brownfields and landfills. That's kind of a cool topic that we haven't covered yet. And to help me with this topic, I am joined by the CEO of BQ Energy Development, Mr. Paul Curran. Paul, welcome to ESG Energize. Thanks, Delphine. Great to be here. Would you start off by telling us who is Paul Curran? I know that you started off in the oil industry, did you not? I did. I worked for 25 years in the oil industry, working for Texaco, and later after they were acquired by Chevron. And, you know, I started off working uh, in research in some engineering positions. Eventually, I was in charge of uh, the European division of what Texaco called the alternate energy division, uh, which was largely cogeneration and something called um, uh, clean coal type of stuff, uh, gasification, that type of thing. Um, almost accidentally, about uh, 20 years ago now, uh, we wound up building a wind farm inside of one of our oil refineries. And um, it was a great project, and, and I wanted to do more of it. Um, at the time, we were going through the merger with Chevron, and um, it, it you know, didn't seem to be a core business. So I, I started up a company to go look for places, largely in those days, uh, places where we could put wind farms uh, within uh, brownfields within the oil industry. And that was the original uh, mission of BQ Energy. So being someone that just loves history, especially history around our industry, where was that refinery? It was a Texaco refinery, right? It was a Texaco BP refinery. Uh, and it was in Rotterdam. Uh-huh. And I was based in Paris and somebody from BP uh-huh. had the idea. They walked into my office in Paris one middle of July day and said they wanted to do it. I had not been told I was supposed to tell them no, uh, so I did. <laughs> uh, and um, and it was a great idea. It really was. Um, you know, inside of you know, like everywhere in the world, uh, in developed countries, you know, people worry about the look of wind turbines, uh, and so yeah. you know, you're going to see them and destroy the the landscape. I don't want to say that the um, the refinery in Rotterdam is ugly already, but most people would say it's not that attractive. <clears throat> and the wind turbines look great compared to the 
the, you know, the aesthetics, if you will, of the refinery. And that's what we realized was, was important. We also realized it was important because they use a lot of electricity. <clears throat> so the electricity generated by the wind turbines physically stays right where they need it. So electrically, it was a great idea. Um, from a social development point of view, it was a great idea. Um, and, and I realized pretty quickly that uh, it wasn't my idea, um, that we could do a lot more of this in the oil industry. Uh, there are upstream properties that um, we were aware of in Kazakhstan and Ivory Coast and elsewhere where they were burning product. They were burning the oil and gas that they were producing to make <clears throat> electricity. Um, they used to talk all the time about uh, heavy winds in Kazakhstan. Um, not surprisingly, as I said, I was based in Paris. We were a popular stopover for people going on their way to Kazakhstan. So we got to see a yeah. lot of people throughout the company. Uh, and I realized this was a really good idea for deployment in the uh, oil industry um, in particular. You know, over time, we realized that uh, solar became more economic. So we did more of that. Uh, but still, you know, we stay really you know, true to our core of looking for brownfields and landfills that we can redevelop with um, renewable energy. Fantastic. Um, very excited to be having this conversation with you because you are part of that history that we've talked on about on other shows, particularly Joe Batir, who runs the Energy Transition podcast, had a guest on his show that uh, by the name of Neil Dykeman. Neil is a partner in Energy Transition Ventures. His group funds startups in the energy transition space. And Neil was talking about how years ago, the, the BPs and the shells of the world were developing alternative energy because mm -hmm. that's what we called it back then. And here you are, living proof of, of being there at the forefront of, of those developments. You know, Delfina, they're developing alternative energies, but they're not deploying it that, or they haven't been deploying it that much in their own operations. Um, and that's the next step, really, that there's lots and lots ah. of energy needs within an upstream facility there's and there's big power lines that are there to service them um so i think that's really the next step is kind of not a you know alternate energy division but really using alternate energy as part of their core business we're seeing more and more of it now and um we realized a couple of years ago that we were going to grow because of that so then jump into bq energy development exactly what do you guys do at bq energy and how did you come to BQ Energy? Well, I founded BQ Energy. That's the easy way to come to the company. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So really when I was, um, you know, uh, wanting to move back to the States uh, after the stint in Europe, um, I looked around and said that uh, this opportunity of doing renewable energy projects on, originally I said closed oil refineries, uh, and there's about 180 or 200 of them in the United States uh, today. Um, I knew that those properties were largely available. They're generally coastal, so I thought it'd be very windy <clears throat> and thought that it would be a great idea to start up a company that would do that. Um, we realized quickly that closed steel mills and closed chemical plants and a lot of other things are similarly called brownfields. So um, our first big project that you can see today uh, is at a closed steel plant just south of Buffalo, uh, and it's a, um, a 35 megawatt wind farm that we developed, um, and it's been operating for 15 years now. Uh, we've also done some projects on, you know, near oil refineries in Texas and elsewhere. And as I say, about 10 years ago, um, we transitioned a little bit. We've been working with an oil company that had a facility in Hawaii. Uh, didn't make sense to put a wind farm there for a couple of reasons, um, but it did make sense to put a, a solar field there. 
And so we realized by doing that, that, you know, solar was economic. And today, most of our projects are solar. They're frankly easier to do. They're, they're simpler for a small business, which is what we are to kind of raise the capital necessary to, uh, to own some of those facilities, but to develop them as well. So I am aware that BQ energy is tied to clean capital is who is clean capital and they are they the ones that are helping you raise the money that you you need to uh transform these these closed facilities yeah again i'll, I'll give simple answers so they own us now <clears throat> um, okay so, <laughs> so the uh, what happened was as i say before it was becoming clear to us over the past couple of years that <clears throat> no matter what we did we were going to grow um the idea of what we were doing was becoming more popular um, you know, policies in various states and governments were promoting the idea of de- redeveloping brownfields and landfills with renewable energy. <clears throat> and so we needed to prepare for growth. Uh, and what that meant was we needed to have some more money in the kitty. Um, we started yeah. talking to uh, Clean Capital just about a year ago, actually. It was a pretty quick transaction. Um, and they said that um, Rather than funding our projects, they would be interested in, in frankly, owning BQ Energy Development um, and having us as a subsidiary of their uh, organization. It's been a great marriage. We closed the deal in June of this year, and um, we operate as an independent subsidiary of, BQ, of uh, Clean Capital. Um, organizationally, you know, we don't have to do things like HR support or you know media relations or you yeah. know a lot of other things. So. In, in combination, it really, really works well uh, to have an organization. Their focus is to own projects. Um, so again, from a financing point of view, we've got some really cool projects. And some of our projects have been getting bigger. You know, we've got some projects that are out in the public domain on, on uh, closed coal mines, as an example. You know, they can be 50 or 100 megawatts, and that's, you know, 50 or $100 million of capital each. Um, so, you know, us spending a lot of time on the finances of these projects um, was technically taking away from our development opportunities and our development skills. Um, so having that relationship with clean capital where, frankly, <clears throat> we develop it, we get it ready to be built, and then they provide the financing and they long term will be the owners of the, of the facilities that we build. Okay. And what is your... What is the reach of what your organization actually does? So from a, from a construction standpoint, do you hire uh, sure. so we will, contractors? Come, absolutely. Yeah. So we learned early in the game that in every state in the union or every place we go, um, part of the appeal of, of development in general is uh, jobs. <clears throat> you know, they want the jobs and they want them local. Um, So we learned whether it's a wind farm or a a solar facility or a battery storage or anything else, um, you know, they want those construction jobs to be local and they want their people trained to be able to do them again as other projects come along. So our mandate is basically we'll do all of the development work. So, you know, there's a a landfill in South Houston uh, that we've been working on for a couple of years. And, you know, in that case, we're doing all of the permitting, which is pretty difficult. Um, we're doing all of the interconnection studies with uh, Centerpoint and ERCOT. <clears throat> we're doing all of the procurement, all of the um, you know other developments, selling the electricity long term, uh, doing all of the work that's required from an engineering point of view. So we'll develop the construction drugs. We will then hire a company 
preferably local, to do the actual nuts and bolts, build it according to our specifications. Uh, and then afterwards, we'll, we'll, we'll do the operations. We'll have somebody local that'll do all of the maintenance work. Uh, but generally speaking, construction and maintenance is always local in our uh, business model. So this particular one in South Houston, given that we are based here in Houston, Texas, yeah. at the Oil and Gas Global Network, is that a solar farm that you are putting in place there? It is a solar farm, and it could take uh, hours to give you the whole backstory on it. But it's um, <clears throat> it's the largest. It will be the largest solar landfill project in the country, <clears throat> probably the world. Actually. Wow. Um, 250 acres of landfill uh, located down um, in uh, the Sunnyside neighborhood of uh, Houston. Um, it's, you know, uh, probably about a mile south of 610 on the south side, not too far from Hobby. <clears throat> it's a um, it's a landfill that was operated from the 30s to the 70s. Um, it's in a very poor neighborhood. Um, and, and frankly, it's a landfill that's been badly, badly neglected. <clears throat> so the maintenance on the facility has been um, abysmal. Um, and the neighborhood really didn't have the political clout to uh, to prevent that. Um, so the current mayor, Mayor Turner, has been a um, really uh, a champion of making this happen as quickly as possible. And, and I think we've been working well with the city to get the preparation. We got the permits from uh, the state through... Um, April of 2022, um, we're just completing all of the agreements with Centerpoint for the electrical interconnection, uh, and uh, the power sales agreements are being finalized now as well. I am absolutely intrigued by this concept. How, what is entailed? I mean, you've got to go in and do a lot of cleanup uh, of the landfill. How do you prepare the the terrain, the property? for a solar farm to be placed on it is question number one. And then question number two, what are some of the challenges involved in a project like this? Sure. You know, it, it's first off, all of the sites we work on, whether they're, uh, you know, a pristine landfill, um, you know, we did one not too far from where I'm sitting in the Hudson Valley recently, um, or a challenging one like in uh, Sunnyside or a brownfield close coal mine um, or an old mining property uh, that's been. We need the same thing that any other solar field does. So we need a design which is um, safe and economic. Um, but there's also always an environmental story to the property we're going to, and we have to start there, <clears throat> you know, whether it's a, a landfill like Sunnyside, where we really have to go through the records of what was done there and when, and how was it done? Um, <clears throat> or, a you know, an, a, as I say, an oil refinery property, um, where we're, you know, the oil refinery was closed and we're going to build something on part of the closed facility. What environmental protections have been placed on those sites to make sure that the public outside um, isn't, cannot be harmed? And then how do we work consistent with that? From a design point of view, um, oftentimes that means designing above the ground and putting nothing underneath. Uh, it's rare that we put wires in the ground. It's rare that we bury things of that nature, uh, only because we want to make sure that the the environmental things like water flow and, and um, you know any other protections have been put in place you know, are not changed by what we're doing. Um, we're going to build up, generally speaking, um, and then we're going to leave the environmental protections that have been put in place, you know, either as they are or in some cases enhanced. 
Ah. And so then what are, what are some of the challenges for, with some of these projects that you've run into? Do sure. you normally keep things on track? Do you get delayed? You know, we haven't been delayed because of the landfill or brownfield nature of it. Um, you know, it's not surprising to you, but the approval process can be, um, you know, more challenging <laughs> only because um, we have, you know, oftentimes two constituencies. Uh, number one is a municipality, which is, you know, by definition, bureaucratic or a corporation. And what we're talking about is an old site that's been closed down for a long time. Uh, and it's sort of, you know, it's closed and leave it there kind of thing. Um, so the, the approval of getting to, to work in the first place can take a little bit of time uh, just because this is a relatively new idea. You know, obviously someone like yourself, you, you're learning as we're talking here um, and you're yes. pretty intelligent and experienced in this hair area. So, you know, if we approach a, a, a major oil company and say we want to put, uh, you know, 20 megawatts on a closed oil refinery site, that'll be different. Um, so they'll want to, they'll need to get up the education curve. Thankfully, now we have a, a website where there's lots of projects that we've done already. We can take people to projects that we've completed already and say, look, here's the way we did it. And it's been operating here for a long time. And we can, you know, send them to other, you know, uh, stakeholders that have been involved in those projects and they can get comfort from that. The same is true, actually, of I mentioned before the state approval for the Sunnyside project. Um, when we talk about a um, going to a new state where nobody's ever built a landfill based solar project, you know, the state regulator who's in charge of making sure that all of these sites are, you know, uh, environmentally pristine uh, and environmentally protected, they have a little bit of hesitation on the first one. So by going to Texas and saying, OK, but you should call up the people in Maryland or the people in New York or the people in other states that we've worked in, um, they do that uh, and they compare notes and they learn from it. They call up the EPA, obviously, uh, and they learn from other places where we've been doing this for quite some time now. And they get the idea that, OK, if they do this and this and this, it'll be fine. And we already know what those criteria are going to be. So we, we bake that into our design early in now. First of all, how big is the, just out of curiosity, the the Sunnyside project? So the land is about 250 acres. So it's a very large landfill. Um, the project itself no. will be um, 52 megawatts of electricity, uh, um, which okay. is a, a pretty large uh, solar field. It's not as big as some of the ones yep. out in West Texas, but it, for an urban design, it, it'll be the largest renewable energy project in a city uh, in the country. Um, and then we have a battery storage project there as well, which is 150 megawatts, uh, 300 megawatt hours. And, and that's really important. Um, you know, if I often refer to this like reverse commuting. So if you, if you live in downtown Houston, but if you work, you know, you know, out in the suburbs someplace, Sugarland or elsewhere, um, you know, it's easier for you to go that way, uh, because you're going against traffic electrically. We're doing the same thing in a, um, by putting electric generation downtown in Houston, you know, most people are trying to get power from, you know, West Texas over to Houston. We're in downtown Houston. So it's really the most resilient place to be. And by putting in some additional battery storage, we really just increase the resiliency of the facility. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how do you, Paul, go about finding the brownfield locations, the landfills that you want to develop on. 
Do you have a process for identifying properties? And or do you have companies that call you up and say, we have this facility, we have this property that is closed that we would like you to come do something with? It's a little both. Um, we get those calls um, and we get them pretty regularly, frankly. Um, you know, frankly, the the uh, city of Houston um, put out a, a, a call saying that they wanted to redevelop this property. Um, and um, we, with a partner, responded to that. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they looked at our our reputation uh, and they checked some of our references and that kind of stuff. So that's how we were able to move forward at Sunnyside. But I think, you know, it's very common that a mining company, you know, we, if we went to a conference, uh, we spend more time at mining and oil and gas conferences than we do at solar conferences um, because that's where our customers are. Um, but I think how we find them, we do do a lot of research. We have, uh, you know, two or three interns uh, that are constantly scanning databases. EPA, EPA keeps a database of, you know, all of the brownfields and Superfund sites and so forth in the country. Um, we have a database of all of the uh, oil refineries and oil terminals in the country, uh, including some of the closed ones um, where, you know, those are, are particularly attractive to us. You know, one of the unusual things we found out over time is that, um, you know, a, an old oil refinery used to use a lot of electricity. Not surprising, uh, but nobody ever takes right. down the power line. Um, so they'll close down the facility and they'll close down the, um, uh, you know, they'll take tanks down, they'll clean everything up and so forth. But that power line and the electrical substation are almost always still there. Um, and so our ability to put a solar field there and not build new infrastructure uh, is really a, a, a neat asset from our point of view that uh, that helps us out a lot. You know, what we have to do on any project is get our power to market um, by being able yeah. to tie into an existing grid that's not being used. Uh, it really helps quite a bit. Is there a particular uh, area of the country that you guys are finding the most success in? Do you have so, your sights set on any particular states? Yeah. So the, the funny answer is uh, that used to be the case. It's less so now. Um, there are some states that have uh, implemented policies that favor redevelopment of brownfields and uh, landfills with um, renewable energy, solar in particular. Um, Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, um, you know, have all done that uh, within the past couple of years. Um but the real truth of the matter is um, that m many companies uh, now want to be able to portray themselves as greener. So an oil company, um, a mining company, uh, universities for sure, uh, would like to be able to say we're buying green energy to make our products or for our own needs, as the case may be. Um, and they're in every state. And so what's happening is it, it used to be, you know, it, it would have been silly of me to think that we would do a project in Louisiana, as an example, um, because it, it really wasn't a renewable energy state. There were no policies in there. But now there's a lot of companies that say, OK, we're doing business in Louisiana and we have a corporate goal of being, you know, X percent renewable by 2030, say. And that's a very common statement in corporate world. Um, what that means is that the utilities are now saying, OK, my customers want this product. I need to go find it. Um, so we're finding receptivity in 
all 50 states um, for renewable energy. And, and frankly, where it used to be, if three or four years ago, somebody came into the office and said that they wanted to look at a site in, uh, in Louisiana, I probably would have said, yeah, I don't see where, how we're going to sell power there. The power is, you know, the power rates are low and there's really not a market from a utility point of view. Now we're very open to any state in the union. Um, you know, Clean Capital, I mentioned before, is our owner. Um, they made an investment in a company called RIP, uh, Renewable IPP, uh, in Alaska. And they're putting up a, a 20 megawatt uh, solar facility in Alaska. Uh, again, you know, it's a, it's a different market. It makes a lot of sense. Um, so you can do a solar energy project wherever people want to buy solar energy. And nowadays, that's, that is pretty much anywhere. Okay, so now I want to bring you back to a comment that you made earlier, and it ties beautifully into the topic of this podcast, which is ESG, Mm -hmm. Environmental, Social, and Governance. You mentioned going into underprivileged communities and being able to provide jobs. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit more about social programs that BQE supports in communities and your ability to partner with those communities to bring benefit beyond just putting in power and cleaning up a a brownfield site. Sure. So it's a very, very common thing for all of us who work at BQ Energy to understand that we're going to be a, a new member of a community. Um, you know, we will start construction on the Sunnyside project later this year. Um, we have already had two classes for job training um, in the Sunnyside neighborhood just because um, it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, we're going to partner with Houston Community College to do some more of that. Um, and it's, a, it's just a it's smart from our point of view. Uh, the more people locally that can work on our projects, you know, frankly, it's cheaper it is because they don't have to commute from who the heck knows where to get there. Um, yeah. We need those people for maintenance afterwards. And frankly, the best maintenance people are people that worked on the construction job. Um, we've learned that on every job we have. They know how it was built. They know where what you know where things were put and um, and they can fix it later on and so forth. So it's just a, a logical business development point of view. It's also the right thing to do. Um, you know, in, in the case of the Sunnyside project, uh, it was um, mandated by the city that we would have a certain percentage of our workforce from the local community. So what's the best way to make sure that we hire people that are trained from the local community? Let's go ahead and start training them. Um, so we've had yeah. a couple of classes, um, you know, down in the Sunnyside neighborhood. Um, we'll do more of them, as I say, and that's not unusual. We've got the same sort of programs going on north of Chicago in Waukegan, Illinois, on a super fun site that we're you know, doing job training for. Uh, and it just makes a lot of sense from a long-term business point of view. The other thing that's important is, you know, again, I said that much of our market is being driven by corporate world kind of saying that they'd like to buy more renewable energy. Um, this is a growth industry. I, I said we did the deal with clean capital because we were going to grow no matter what. Uh, we just had to be ready for it. Um, these jobs that we're training people for, um, are jobs that are going to be sustainable. Um, so if they want to stay in Houston, good for them. If they want to go to Oklahoma, good for them. 
um, you know, solar energy installation is a very high growth area. And, and we're training them for neat jobs that they can take elsewhere if they want to. Wow. Um, I have been very selfish asking, uh, driving the conversation to the Sunnyside Project because we're here in Houston, Texas. Yeah, we love Houston. It's a good place. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, because I live in Houston. I love Houston. Yeah. Um, but tell me, Paul, do you have a favorite project or a, a the most exciting project? One that sticks out in in your mind for what for whatever reason? You know, the first projects you do are always the most exciting. So the project we did in Rotterdam when I was still with. Uh, Texaco and Chevron was fun, but the project that you're betting your entire company on, you know, your first one or two, uh, are always the ones that you, you love. So if, if I get to go to Buffalo, New York, <clears throat> for whatever reason, Lackawanna, New York is just south of Buffalo. You can see it from downtown Buffalo. And I see those 35 megawatts of wind turbines that we developed, um, the first in the country to have, uh, you know, uh, renewable energy on a brownfield at that scale. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's exciting to me. It's, it's, it's incredibly gratifying that 15 years later, um, those turbines are still spinning and still making renewable energy in a place where they should be. Uh, that steel mill closed down in the, in the 1980s. Uh, it sat dormant for 20 years. Uh, and, it, you know, to be honest with you, looking back on it, it was an easy idea. Um, you know, it's not a stroke of brilliance, like, you know, developing some, you know, fancy electric car that's a new thing that nobody could do. Um, it was an easy and obvious idea and, and makes a lot of sense. There's other projects that I love. We have the um, a very, very large uh, a 20 megawatt uh, nominally sized facility in Annapolis, Maryland, um, that, again, took a couple of years to convince people. Um, but it, it really um, the light bulb goes on for a lot of folks once you're kind of getting into it that, oh, you want to take the dump and you want to take the dump and put renewable energy all over it. There's no downside to that. I love it. There's just not. And, I and love so, it. you know, when we kind of go through it, you know, there are a ton of these types of facilities sitting dormant right now in a lot of corporate, um, you know, asset uh, balance sheets um, and taking literally dumps uh, or closed mines <laughs> or, you know, closed upstream oil properties and so forth. Uh, and deploying that and reusing the power lines that have been there forever. Um, it really is an easy story to tell people. It takes a while to get to the right people and to explain it to them, but it's a good story. The other thing that's really important is looking back on projects. If, if I went up to uh, Lackawanna, New York, to where that wind farm is, or if I went to Annapolis, um, we don't have any stories where people were disappointed after we built it. Um, you know, there's always a little reluctance when you go in and people are a little bit, you know, afraid of change. It's normal. Uh, but when yeah. we look at it and go back and say, OK, you know, talking to the people in Annapolis, talking to the people in Lackawanna or wherever and, and say, OK, is it did we do something we, you didn't expect? Did we do something that was less than what you expected? We've really not had a complaint uh, come back to us later where people uh, saw something other than we took the surface of the dump and we turned it into renewable energy. And, and by and large, uh, they're proud of it. If you go to the look at the corporate seal of the city of Lackawanna, it used to be a smokestack with a, uh, a legendary priest and some other things on it. They changed it after we built the plant. It's now not a smokestack. It's a wind farm. It's a wind turbine. Um, and again, wow. that, you know, they're proud of what what was uh, able to do together. 
and it's a um, it's a good story. So putting renewable energy on brownfields and landfills, um, you know, we're not the only ones that do it, but we've been doing it longer than anybody, and it really is a good idea. Well, it sounds to me that you're you've pursued a passion and you're seeing the fruits of your labor come about in actually making lasting impact and change in our world. And I don't know that, that all of us get that, that benefit in our lifetimes, right. In our professional careers. So Paul, any, any parting comments, any advice, any view into the future of energy and what you might see on the horizon for ESG? You know, it's um, the world of batteries is, is what's coming next. Um, you know, we started with wind turbines. We went to, uh, you know, the, the world of solar. Um, we fervently believe that doing these projects on landfills and brownfields, there are more landfills and brownfields than you could ever possibly develop for all this. But the next big thing is battery storage. It's not there yet. Um, it's still, you know, the operations of these facilities and the manufacturing are still catching up with the market demand. But, you know, I was at a, um, an event last uh, weekend out in Arizona and, you know, just sitting over having a drink with people. Um, it wasn't an energy event, but people were talking about, oh, I don't think that I think we're going too fast with this renewable energy stuff. And they're right in some regards. You know, what if the wind doesn't blow? What if it's not sunny? Uh, the batteries are an incredibly important piece, and they're not um, yet caught up in terms of market maturity with, uh, you know, the other tech, the generation technologies. That will happen, um, and I think it's uh, something that will really be a game changer as we kind of look forward and so forth. We can do an awful lot of solar energy and wind, you know, generation. There's lots of brownfields. We'll be fine finding more of them. Um, but the, the balancing act of how do you make sure that the grid still works so that both of us can have our computers and lights and so forth at all times, no matter what, uh, will be important. And those batteries in the right places, such as downtown Houston, will be incredibly important for resiliency of the entire grid. Very well stated. <laughs> Paul, um, can we direct people to a website that if they want more information to access that we can put in the show notes? Absolutely. www.bqenergy.com. And there is a somewhere on there, a way that you can click on something that sends a note to us. Uh, if you want to uh, learn a little bit more, or if you have a great uh, brownfield site that you'd like to redevelop as we're talking, um, those come in and we answer them really, really quickly. So um, if you'd like more information, feel free to contact us through the website, bqenergy.com. We'll put that in the show notes, ladies and gentlemen. Paul, fascinating, exciting. Thank you very much for being on ESG Energized. Anytime. Thanks, Delkinu. Join us again next week on the ESG Energized podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.